0: Hello and welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor and Witness Akhil Amar. Welcome, Akhil. Ah, what do you mean by witness, Andy? Well, of course, last week, uh, as we tape this, uh, Akhil testified at the uh, Supreme Court of the United States uh, Commission, official name, it is the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Sounds very impressive. (laughs) Yes. And uh, so we're going to review that testimony, and I think it'll be quite interesting to get this kind of insider's look at what it's like to testify before uh, such a prestigious commission, how one prepares, what was said, what went on during the meeting, post-mortem, you know, and so forth. And what we can look at uh, in terms of the work of the commission going forward. So, uh, welcome, Akil. Thanks, Andy. And uh, this was, of course, a little bit unusual
1: because it was by Zoom um, rather than in person. Um, as you know, I've, uh, in years past, testified in person before uh, the House and the Senate and, and, and other um, regulatory bodies. Um, so, But
0: Zoom was a little different. And by the way, for um, listeners who are interested, the website com has... Records of all of uh, Professor Mars' past testimonies. We have videos, we're available, and also transcripts.
1: And speaking of videos and transcripts, um, there are videos and transcripts of this most recent one available. What on the White House um, website or YouTube?
0: Um, uh, yeah, it's the it's the White House website, whitehouse.gov, um, and we'll uh, I'll post a link to it on in the show notes so you can. Watch the entire seven hours of testimony um, from July 20th, uh, or if you want to get right to the highlights, you go to the two o'clock section where uh, where Professor Moore appeared. So, uh, now, your testimony here, you had uh, prepared remarks, um, written testimony. Yes. Um, and then... You also had remarks that you delivered to the commission.
1: Right, an oral statement I was invited to make. So uh, for the prepared remarks, I was directed to basically um, submit something between 7,000, I think, and 10,000 words. I think I submitted about half that, 4,000. I think mine was among the shortest, maybe the shortest um, written testimony because I wanted just to cut to the chase. Um, And we'll we'll be posting that um, on our show notes, and it's available from the whitehouse.gov website. Um, And then I was invited at 2 o'clock to make a 5-minute, no more than 5-minute opening statement, and I think I came in at a little bit under 4. And again, I was trying to be um, uh, very succinct.
0: Well, I think one of the reasons that you were able to be so brief is that you have more detailed backup in the form of one of our earlier podcasts
1: which I incorporated by reference and made specific mention of actually in my um, uh, opening remarks. so should we actually listen to those opening remarks can we can we um, can we uh, do that for our audience?
0: Yes, yeah, so uh, here are the uh, the opening remarks that Professor Moore uh, gave to the Commission. Four minutes.
1: Professor Amar, you have the floor. Uh, Distinguished co-chairs, distinguished commissioners, thank you. Five quick points. Here is my proposal. In the future, each Supreme Court appointee should do 18 years of active service, followed by a lifetime on the Supreme Court itself of relaxed service. Relaxed, Relaxed service justices, also known as emeritus justices, would generally not sit on banc with active service justices, but would perform other Supreme Court functions, administrative, educational, ceremonial, advisory, and more, the precise duty roster to be established and occasionally revised by the active service justices. New justices would join the court every odd year and the system would be phased in purely prospectively. Two. This is not a partisan political proposal. I first endorsed it in 2002 when a Republican, George W. Bush was president and Republicans controlled the Senate. I'm a Democrat and my co-author back then was a Republican, indeed the co-founder and co-chair of the Federalist Society. Versions of this proposal have been endorsed over the last two decades by leading scholars across the spectrum including the eminent scholars, David Shapiro, and Paul Mishkin, co-editors of the canonical Hart and Wexler Casebook. Three, the general idea of 18 years of active service has many advantages as several other witnesses have acknowledged. I cataloged 18 distinct advantages in my written testimony. Four, My proposal is easily and obviously constitutional as a mere statute. It does not require a constitutional amendment. It recognizes a single office and it simply modifies the duties of that office purely prospectively. It's closely akin to rules of procedure that are universally understood as constitutional and indeed no different in its essence from laws dating back to the first Congress supported by James Madison signed into law by George Washington and enforced without objection by every early justice, including John Marshall and Joseph Story. Fifth and finally, my proposal is strictly speaking, not a term limit. A justice serves on the court for life, gets paid for life, holds a formal office as Supreme Court justice for life, and does various kinds of Supreme Court work for life. Some casual observers have expressed concern about the idea that relaxed service emeritus justices might ride circuit, and thus might need a separate judicial commission creating certain technical constitutional complexities. If this were an issue, the circuit riding feature of the proposal can be eliminated altogether. But in fact, the circuit riding feature is an echo of the Judiciary Act of 1789. The law and custom today plainly permit Supreme Court justices to sit on lower federal courts by designation. Thus, Chief Justice Rehnquist sat by designation in the mid 1990s while also serving as chief. At least 11 retired justices since 1937 have sat by designation and in effect have ridden circuit. To wit, Justices Van de Vanter, Reed, Burton, Clark, Stewart, Powell, Brennan, Marshall, White, O'Connor, and Souter. See generally 28 U.S.C. section 294. I welcome your questions. Thank you. Okay, well, that was scintillating. <laughs> uh, so as our audience just heard, I uh, kept my initial oral presentation short a minute less than they uh uh, um, proposed Uh, but i was able to do that andy because of our podcast because i said um as your audience as our audience heard uh, that that the general idea of 18 years of active service has many advantages as several other witnesses have acknowledged i cataloged 18 distinct advantages in my written testimony okay and my written testimony in turn um, here's how I, I, I'm going to read actually the 18 points, but let me tell you, um, because the written testimony was also short, um, why I was able to be um, so s- succinct here. Um, and the re- uh, h- here's how I did it. I just listened to our earlier podcast episode, 18 Arguments for 18 Years. And anyone who wants to listen to that episode um, or listen to it again um, will hear that We were just talking. I thought at the beginning, I think of the conversation, maybe I can count six or eight advantages or something. But as we went through the the issues and and you asked great questions and pushed back and and, uh, requested additional elaboration, by the end, we had identified um, 18 different reasons why um, this uh, idea of 18 years of active service on the court was uh, a good one.
0: so um, and before you, you begin, I'll just let my our, our listeners know that's episode sixteen from April twenty eighth. So so here's what I did
1: was when I was preparing a written testimony, I just sat down with the headphones, listened to the podcast, and just you know, paused it every so often and transcribed a new point. So so here's my written testimony, which of course will be on our show notes. Here in brief were my quote eighteen arguments for eighteen years unquote one. The status quo of lifetime active service, when combined with a partisan arms race, encourages each of our two major political parties to appoint unduly young and unseasoned jurists to the court, in the hopes of entrenching the party vision on the court for as many years as possible. 2. At the other end of the life cycle, the status quo allows full service of justices who are too old, whose arteries have literally hardened, and who are not at their prime. Historically, most justices have not done their best work in their superannuated years. 3. The current system creates the possibility of too long a time lag between initial appointment and current judgment. The most senior active justices may be wildly out of touch with the nation's evolving mood because these justices were appointed long ago, even if they are still relatively young and spry and their arteries have not hardened. The, this time lag is particularly problematic for younger Americans who are not even voters when many current justices were selected. Many of America's younger generation lack a close emotional connection to the court, in part perhaps because of the long time lag. The reform statute caps this time lag at 18 years for the court's most important function, decision-making in en banc cases. 4. The current system enables justices to strategically and politically time their resignations. This is a less attractive model of judicial independence. Currently, some justices act politically when they time their exits. 5. 18 is a magic number enabling regular and steady replacement, a la the Senate. The Senate's staggered replenishment system adds a new third every two years. The 18-year active service plan adds a new ninth every two, every two years. Six. Eighteen is a magic number in a second and distinct way. Appointment power is regularized and smoothed out across presidencies and across quadrennial presidential elections. Each president can count on two appointments and this smoothing makes replenishment less arbitrary, random, and capricious. Seven. Relatedly, Regular replenishment on the front bench makes it easier for voters to think about the court's future every presidential election without awkward and indeed ghoulish speculation about life expectancies and health prognoses of individual sitting justices.
0: Like we engaged in our (laughs) recent uh, episode. (laughs) Call us
1: ghouls. Eight. Shortened terms of active service will reduce the stakes and the temperature... Of currently overheated court confirmation battles. Nine, shortened terms of active service will increase judicial humility. Ten, replenishment every odd year regularizes appointments within each presidential term, with half the active justices chosen pre midterm and half post midterm. The opening up of vacancies in odd years further reduces the political temperature of court confirmation battles by staging these battles in non-election years. 11. An 18-year cap on active service brings the U.S. Supreme Court model into closer alignment with the most admirable state state Supreme Court systems, almost none of which features active service for life. The federal government can and should learn from the lessons of states the proverbial laboratories of American democratic experimentation. Twelve, ditto on the comparative international front. Almost no other modern democracy in the world has a lifetime model of active service for its apex court. America as a whole can learn from the experiences of the world's other notable democracies. Thirteen, unlike current reform proposals to pack the court... The 18-year proposal is not partisan and is unlikely to spiral out of control when party control shifts in Washington, D.C. at some point in the future. Fourteen, the 18-year proposal not only eliminates the occasional or regular reality of politically timed retirements, it eliminates the public perception of politics in judicial retirements a perception that may wrongly exist when Justice X, in fact, retires nowadays for entirely personal reasons, but a perception that adds to current public cynicism about the court. And we also, by the way, Andy talked about that in Mm -hmm. a previous episode. We've talked about several of these issues in previous episodes. Um, Fifteen, unlike the 18-year plan, every active justice is slated to serve as chief justice in his, her last two years of active service. This, too, evens out power across Presidents and eliminates the current lumpiness, giving some Presidents, for purely accidental reasons, more power than others to pick the Court's Chief. 16. Rotation of the Chief Justiceship equalizes power within the Court. Relatedly, Associate Justices will not have incentives to pander to the President in the hopes of one day being nominated, by a President of course, to become Chief Justice. Even if associate justices never, in fact, pander, the mere public perception that justices might well be auditioning to be chief is undesirable. 17. Chief justices will be those who clearly understand the court, having typically served on the active bench for the previous 16 years and having received, one would expect, special training by their predecessor, chief justice. 18. And last, circuit duty of emeritus justices could help reconnect the Supreme Court with lawyers and judges in the hinterlands, a nice echo of the original vision of the court as implemented by the Judiciary Act of 1789. And just to repeat, Andy, um, these points I was able to just crisply summarize in my written testimony and allude to in my oral testimony because you and I did, this earlier podcast in which your questions really helped crystallize and precipitate for me, you know these points which I did not have formulated in my head before our conversation. And truth, I couldn't even remember all of them after our conversation. but it's there for the world forever. Our audience can, can go back and listen to that episode as well and and if they don't want to, they just got the meat right now. Right. That's great. Um, now of course so, so thank you oh because because you know, this is because you ask me great questions and have good pushback well thank
0: you I mean I think frankly uh, not to, to make this a, a love fest but you know how many disting- oh let's make it a love fest <laughs> How many distinguished professors <laughs> of uh, of constitutional law would really uh, you know sit down with someone who's not even an attorney? And take their questions seriously. So I think that uh, that speaks to to a certain uh, modesty or humility on your part.
1: But you represent your fellow citizens. And so what I'm saying is, I I actually am pretty pleased with how that uh, testimony went. Um, but you prepped me for it because in the end the testimony wasn't just for the commissioners most of whom were experts a lot of very impressive law professors some of whom were my colleagues some of whom are my uh, former students uh, some of whom are um, uh, my, my role models um, in, in, in the profession yeah they're the immediate audience of, of my testimony but in the end if this proposal is going to go anywhere. It's going to have to have political legs. It's going to have to resonate with the American people. Um, and that's what we're trying to reach in the podcast is citizenry generally. And that's what whom you represent, you know, um, in our conversations. Well, non-experts who might have this question or that concern. Um, and seriously, and you in effect mooted me. You prepped me um, without, without either of us knowing that that's what we were doing mm-hmm. um, in our conversation.
0: Well, I think it's a, that, that, that makes a good point, which is that in order for this to gain acceptance, it's, it's going to have to be in part because there's pressure from the American people. Or um, well, at least acceptance. Right. Because even though it is, I think you can, you, if you examine it closely, you'll agree that it's a nonpartisan plan. It's prospective, you know, it's, it's, and, and so forth. Um, and there are various ways that it's nonpartisan which we can talk about. Um, But even though it is nonpartisan, the Republicans are going to have to accept it because right now they're in a position where they believe they have won the court. So in order to get them to move off of a situation where they already feel that they've won the court, there's going to have to be pressure from the American people.
1: And you made the point in our earlier conversation about 18 arguments for 18 years that once the system is up and running... If they win the presidency, and, and they think they may very well, the and they're going to want actually to buy into this system because it's not partisan. It comes up with a schedule, and every president, Republican or Democrat, going forward, gets two appointments, and um, and that um, uh, and so. And you're right they've won the court but only for now and who mm-hmm. knows you know what can happen you know again now back to ghoulishness but but bad things can can happen um, people might be forced off the court before they are expecting um uh, uh to be or just you know the vicissitudes of, of life good things can happen and people might want to go off the court to, to do something else in their in their lives so it's true they're ahead right now but but at most that's for a few years, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in the long run, and if this is a sensible plan for the long run, because it gives Republican presidents going forward—that's your point about pure prospectivity—they're due, um, and it doesn't force anyone who's already on the court, you know, out early. Um, in my proposal, I call them legacy justices. Um, um, these are features that I hope would will, will encourage Republican buy-in and as I mentioned in my testimony I first floated a version of this idea in 2002 when George W Bush was president and the Republicans controlled the Senate and my co-author was Steve Calabresi the uh, a Republican who actually back then voted for George W in 2016 has publicly told us all he he voted for for Donald Trump and and he's the co-chair and and co-founder Founder of the Federal Society, and so it isn't a partisan plan in its conception,
0: um, or I think in its in its um, uh, details. The point that I made in the earlier podcast on this was that once it's in place, um, you know what what's to I asked the question, then I answered my own question. Yes, you did. What's what's to stop a Republican? President uh, in with undivided government, in other words, where the the Senate, the House, and the President are all Republican from repealing it, and the answer that I answered uh, myself yeah. or unified government was that, well, that they've. They would, by definition, have the presidency at that point, which means they would have two seats coming to them. Yeah. So why would they want to, you know, uh, you know, repeal a, a situation like that, which is about to give them two seats?
1: Whereas if you had some uh, court packing plan that was basically j- just kind of um, binging for now, adding six justices on Biden's watch, well... Here's what would happen when you have a president, Nikki Haley or Donald Trump or whatever, um, in 2025. You know, if the Democrats add six Biden justices and the Republicans win, and if they win the presidency, they're likely to win the Senate for reasons we've talked about before in the Electoral College, because they're winning swing states like like Florida and and North Carolina and Wisconsin and, and, and Pennsylvania and Michigan or some you know um, subset thereof, Arizona, Georgia. So if they win the presidency, they're going to win the Senate. And, and if in and court packing, six Biden, new, new Biden justices adding, you know, making the court 15 can be responded to with nine new um, Trump justices or Nikki Haley justices or Ron DeSantis justices or whatever. Yeah, they'd have to win the House, too, because
0: that would be a statute, right?
1: And they, are, they have advantages, as we've talked about in, in previous episodes, given the geographic um, uh, nature of districting and the clustering of Democrats.
0: And the fact that we just had a census ah,
1: also. Also, exactly
0: so. Mm-hmm. So um, after you, you did this and the other, uh, after you read this testimony, and the other uh, panelists also read their testimony. And then there was a Q&A. right. So um, you know I think in some ways the q and a is the most interesting part of the of the of the hearing um, and because you not only have the uh, the members of the commission asking questions of the panelists but then the panelists are sort of responding to each other when they answer questions you know subsequently um, so it's almost like a like a round table discussion not quite. Um, so why don't we play the uh, first round of questions and answers that you received um, and, uh, and then we can discuss them. Great.
1: So we'll start with Caleb Nelson, who's the Emerson G. Spee's Distinguished Professor of Law and Cadell and Chapman Professor of Law at University of Virginia School of Law. Commissioner Nelson.
2: Thank you, co-chair Rodriguez. And thank you to the panelists for taking the time to prepare such thoughtful testimony. Professor Amar, I want to start with one of the issues that Professor Jackson raised in in her oral testimony, uh, the constitutionality of the the statutory time rules that you're proposing. Just to make sure that we're on the same page, I want to start just with a threshold question about the office that judges who serve on the Supreme Court hold. You referred to the Office of Supreme Court Justice and the Good Behavior Clause of Article Three does arguably refer separately to the judges of the Supreme Court and the judges of lower federal courts. And the Appointments Clause of Article 2 specifically addresses the appointment of what it calls, quote, judges of the Supreme Court, close quote. Do you agree that Supreme Court justices need to be separately appointed to the Supreme Court in particular, so that the office that they shall hold during good behavior is that of being a judge on the Supreme Court, or could Congress establish a genuine term limit system, not just your time rules, but, but a system under which an appointee is a judge of the Supreme Court only for a set number of years and then becomes a judge on a lower federal court for the rest of the lifetime appointment?
3: You're muted, Professor Amar, I'm sorry. Thank you,
1: Thank you Commissioner. I prefer the first Um, approach. The second one might be constitutional, but I think it raises some concerns. Um, I'm smiling because I remember way back when, when you were a student of mine, one of my best students ever in fed courts. um, And I am smiling also because um, I thought of you uniquely when I modified maybe an earlier, slightly more careless version of the idea that I floated back in 2002, because I've been very powerfully influenced by your idea about liquidation, um, about pay, paying close attention to the early practices, um, especially of the first Congress, which had a lot of fa- found, uh, framers and ratifiers, laws signed um, by none other than George Washington. And I want my, 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 current version is, I've I've tried to structure it so it's it's virtually indistinguishable from the first judiciary act in which people received, I believe one commission as Supreme Court justices, they also rode circuit. That was connected to their Supreme Court function of 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 of, of bringing Supreme Court ideas to every man's door, um, and and in turn reporting back to their fellow justices akin to nisi prius and the assize system. But I think you know why push the envelope? Why stretch it if you can bring it into perfect conformity with the early practice? Um, established by the likes of James Madison, George Washington, uh, John Marshall, and and for that matter, Joseph Story.
2: Fair enough. So, So let's assume that the Constitution does contemplate a distinct office of judge of the Supreme Court. And let's assume appointees are entitled to hold that office during good behavior without any fixed term. Under the system that you're proposing, everybody who's appointed to the Supreme Court could stay in office for life. But of course, the duties of that office would change pretty dramatically after 18 years. I'm wondering whether somebody who can no longer participate in any of the court's decisions, unless perhaps there's a short staff situation, is really still a judge of the Supreme Court in the sense that the Constitution contemplates. How should we think about that question? Is the essence of being a judge of the Supreme Court in the sense that the Constitution contemplates just the title and the salary and the existence of some official functions, or does it also include the authority to participate in the court's exercise of judicial power, You know, its decision of actual cases that come before the Supreme Court?
1: So once again, I think back to the early practice and, and, and the early liquidation. I now understand in a way that I never did before, uh, Commissioner, why the original Supreme Court size was six, which is an even number. And if you think it's all about the Supreme Court on bank, that looks weird. Their most important function at the founding was actually writing circuit. There were three circuits that divided actually two justices per circuit. They were spending most of their time actually on circuit, not on bank. And that was an important part of their function. England lost that Britain lost the um, loyalty of America because actually the center wasn't paying attention to the periphery. So having justices on your central court out there, you know, in circuit is a huge Supreme Court function, central court function. Also, even if you're not actually sitting on banc, you are permitted to if the court is short-staffed, but you're performing other... Um, public, um, uh, um, um, educational, ceremonial, public service, docket management, if if you like, advisory functions. Supreme Court justices today do administrative stuff. They testify before Congress. They meet foreign diplomats. They show the flag. They explain the Constitution to Americans and the world. Those are central Supreme Court functions. And especially if Congress wants those to be front and center. And if the justices themselves promulgate a sensible duty roster, it seems to me in a real way and not just a formal way, they are Supreme Court justices in every way. And and one person who agreed with me about that was named John Marshall, because actually he took the position with a, um, uh, the Jeffersonian repeal of uh, of the uh, judiciary at the Midnight Judges Act, that as long as justices got their salary, all sorts of other things um, and their title, all sorts of other things were totally negotiable. That was John Marshall's own position, somewhat formalistic, but I'm going beyond mere formalism and paying attention to what the early practice actually was.
2: So with respect to the historical liquidation, Are there historical examples of Congress passing statutes that prevent justices from hearing any cases that the Supreme Court decides? I mean, the circuit-riding practice gives additional duties to the justices so that they sit on lower courts when the Supreme Court isn't in session, but, but they're also deciding Supreme Court cases. Are there historical examples of Congress enacting statutes that categorically exclude some categories of justices from participating in the court's merits docket?
1: Well, um, there are recusal rules, um, both regulatory and statutory, and not just unique to the Supreme Court, that do say you're not supposed to hear certain categories of cases where you have a financial self-interest. And in a way, you can think of my idea as a recusal rule of sorts. You should be generally recused after you've had your fair, sh- your, your turn back, so to speak, and let, let others do it. So I, I do think it's akin to a certain kind of you know, recusal idea. Um, to, so, to the
2: extent Congress does have the flexibility to do that, could Congress establish other criteria for stripping justices of the authority to, to participate in the court's merits docket besides just length of service? I mean, what are the constitutional limits on Congress's ability to do this sort of thing, in your view?
1: Well, um, I, I, I take the, the word proper very seriously in the necessary and proper clause. And I think when we're thinking about propriety, we can look at practices of um, uh, other democratic c- countries, as my colleagues have identified. That's not the only test, but let's look at those things. Let's look at the states and how they've done it. And so here are things that, to me, make it proper. It's it's not gerrymandered. It's, it's, it's not... Um, uh, pegged to someone's party, it's, it's not treating um, any justice differently than any other justice, possibly on the basis of, of congressional displeasure with a past justice's ruling or a justice's uh, predicted ruling. So there's a generality to it, a prospectivity to it, a non-partisan feature to it. It's about future presidents, whether Democrat and Republican in, in their appointment practices. So I think in all of those ways, it's, it, it passes a Wexlerian um, neutral principles um, idea, it seems to me. Um, and I do think we see versions of, of this sort of thing in um, uh, state Supreme Courts, as uh, my colleagues have mentioned, and in courts around the world.
2: So Professor Amar, you're, you're a distinguished scholar and your judgment certainly carries a lot of weight with me, with me and with others. Of course, there are also some distinguished scholars, including people who support term limits as a policy matter who at least have constitutional doubts about such a statute or think it would be definitely unconstitutional. Should Congress worry that a statute adopting your proposal would lead to destabilizing disputes about whether the Supreme Court is properly constituted? I can imagine pretty messy disagreements about which justices should sit on a case that involves the constitutionality of such a statute or that involves whether the One portion of the statute is separable from the portion establishing new appointments. Um, And no matter how the court answers those questions, I can imagine some citizens and public officials who have the opposite view might think that all subsequent decisions issued by the court are, are tainted because the court isn't properly constituted. Should we worry about that?
1: Yes, um, but under the, under the rule of necessity, I think justices have always been allowed to rule on issues, even if they may relate to um, the jurisdiction of, of the court and all the rest, that's a, a general principle um, um, of, of, of law. Um, honestly, many of the objections that have been raised have been raised to earlier versions of the proposal that are different than the one that I'm offering today, that's much more tailored. So if Congress is serious about this, You know, I welcome the opportunity to testify with with an individual, uh, another scholar or set of scholars, and they can identify the specific concerns that they have, because I don't think actually the current version you know, is uh, as vulnerable to a, a constitutional criticism as some various other incarnations, in fact, have been. But yes, we should try to do this in a way that maximizes legitimacy. Remember also, I'm trying to invite the existing active justices to be participants in this um, uh, uh, proposal by giving them um, an important regulatory voice in identifying what they think are proper functions for um, uh, relaxed service emeritus justices. And, and and it's very important, I think, to get their buy-in into, into the regime. That That's, that's a, one of the newer features of, of the proposal that I put forth today, which to repeat, is not the same as earlier versions that have been floated, the Crampton-Carrington proposal and others. Thank you.
0: Okay, so fascinating to listen to the the Q&A. There's a couple of terms that you use there that might uh, deserve some clarification for our audience. Um, For example, uh, liquidation was referred to. Um, What exactly does that, what is liquidation?
1: Um, yeah, so it's, it's not about um, what happens um, uh, when you go to your favorite uh, pub or bar, you know, at, at 11 p.m. and, and, and uh, start imbibing or something. Um, it's a f- term that is used in the Federalist Number 37 by James Madison... Um, and maybe we can put a link um, up to that um, on, in the show notes. In which he said, Listen, the Constitution has some generalities to it. It's going to be made more concrete and specific by um, early practices that will basically um, concrete. You know, it's weird. Li- liquid you think of as clear, concrete we think of as very sort of thick and muddy. But uh, um, concretizing, um, we might say, Madison said, liquidating, basically fixing. Um, like with formalin or something like that. You're, you're a physician, so you, you've had all sorts of experience with fixing things in formalin. Um, basically, um, something that's a little bit ambiguous, kind of the, uh, the text, locking it in place. That's the Federalist 37. So that's um, one reference. Now, what you need to understand, our audience needs to understand, is the person I'm talking to, Caleb Nelson, is a really distinguished constitutional law professor. He's at University of Virginia. He was one of my students, one of my best and favorite students. He's on the conservative side in that he clerked for for Clarence Thomas, one of Thomas's favorite law clerks. Um, His brother-in-law is Bill Kristol. He and Bill Kristol are are married to sisters, I believe. Um, But interestingly, Caleb wrote a really important article in I think 2001, the Virginia Law Review that talks about the Federalist 37 and liquidation and the importance of these early practices, in particular the the First Judiciary Act, for example, stuff that George Washington agreed to, that that James Madison voted for, and now no longer write, writing as, as Publius, the Federalist 37, but now in the first Congress, the the importance of those early constitutional decisions um, implementing and interpreting arguably ambiguous constitutional text. That's liquidation, and it's particularly powerful when it comes right on the heels of um, the adoption of a constitution and with the support of people who were prominent framers and ratifiers of that document. So that's what liquidation is all about, and I'm telling Caleb, listen, my idea that it's re- that, that circuit writing is actually an important part of supreme uh, being on the central court. Um, I'm not getting that from my head. I'm getting that from the early practice. And, and, and they had one commission. Each justice had one commission as a Supreme Court associate Justice. But, and part of that was sitting in the center with colleagues, but part of that was writing circuit. Um, telling uh, folks in the hinterland what the Supreme Court thought about this issue or that one, hearing from them and then reporting it back to the center. That's what an early justice spent 10 of the 12 months of every year doing. Two months in DC, 10 months, in effect, riding circuit. That's a really important function of a central court. And Caleb, that's your idea. That's liquidation. By the way, that's how you persuade people. You actually listen to them, you try to actually connect your ideas to them, if you're really lucky, you actually persuade them. This was, in a way, their idea. It's something that they pre-existingly believed. Aristotle talks about this and about persuasion in part is drawing out something in the other person that's already part of the other person, but you have to see that other person and hear that other person. Happily, you know, for me, I was just lucky, I actually know Caleb Nelson, really respect his work and that's one of his bigger ideas and I'm saying, hey, bro, this is actually a version of your idea. Um, and, uh, and and some people saying, oh, well, you're, you're proposing different commissions, one for Supreme Court, one for lower court. No, that's not what they did at the founding, that you got one commission and part of your job was to ride circuit. Well, if in the old days, every year you sit in D.C. for two months and ride circuit for 10, why can't Congress today say actually the first 18 years you sit in D.C. and after that? You ride circuit. It's just a slight rejiggering of, of the timing, but fundamentally um, a, a, a concept of uh, justices on the Supreme Court doing more than just en banc stuff. And if you think the en banc stuff is the most important thing, it's really weird that there are six justices because there's not necessarily then a tiebreaker um, um, if, if, it's, if it's all about en banc. And what I realized it was in my recent book, which you helped me with a lot, is I finally figured out, which I didn't understand before, why it was six. Now, there's a lot of talk about court size, court packing, for example. You know, Nine wasn't fixed. The original constitution had six. Why six? Because it doesn't make sense if, if it's all about en banc. Six does make sense because there were three circuits, and they wanted two justices per circuit. It was all about circuits. That was the more important function at the founding, and you and I were talking offline yesterday. I hadn't remembered until a couple of days ago. The great David Curry saw that first and, and said it has a sentence uh, about that. But here's what my new book um, um, does. It say here's why circuit writing is so important. Because Britain loses America because. The imperial center isn't listening to the hinterlands, not sending people out you know, to every man's door and explaining to people where they live, what the basic idea of the central government is, what they're trying to do, and listening to questions and concerns and taking them back to the center. That's why Britain loses America. And now I understand why the Judiciary Act was smarter than I originally understood, because it, it seems stupid when um, it was six. No, they're not stupid. I was stupid. I didn't understand what they were trying to do because I was too focused on on banc and they were actually focused on the centrality of circle writing. Now, here's one other thing because I listened to you and not just Caleb. You reminded me in because I showed you an early version of the testimony. Oh, but that isn't an essential feature. You could get rid of that and still you know, keep your big idea. You could get rid of any particular feature of um, post-active service um, emeritus status. Your big idea is just um, you're um, active for 18 years. You have a different set of, of duties thereafter. They could involve circ ride, but they don't have to. It could be lots of things. The big idea is you don't generally serve on the front bench and you do other stuff that's
0: genuinely court related. So Correct. that's really the liquidated idea that you're talking about, which is, you know, although it took the form of circuit riding, the real idea is that the duties of a Supreme Court justice are manifold. Yes. So that, so that it isn't only about unbunk. Right. So, because if it really only were only about circuit riding as being the liquidated, uh, question here, one might say that the liquidation was liquidated. Okay, because in in the more conventional sense, in other words, since <laughs> they don't ride circuit anymore, yes, it's true at the founding, but you know the the lived experience of the justices of the uh, over the centuries have rendered this you know, obsolete. So therefore. To bring it back now, just because it was a practice at the founding, you know, I think you would need more than that, given that it went away on, of its own and, weight.
1: And remember, in my oral remarks, which wasn't in my written testimony, I reminded the audience it hasn't gone away, that William Rehnquist, as Chief Justice, actually sat and presided over, a, 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 I think it was a criminal jury trial, uh, which he's allowed to do, and 11 justices, at least, I don't know about Justice Kennedy, but at least 11, all the way through Souter, beginning in 1937, 11 retired justices actually um, uh, have um, uh, sat by designation and ridden circuit. So it, it actually it is not just something from the 18th century or the 19th century. It's actually a, a feature of the 20th and 21st century judiciaries as well.
0: You know, this question is a little bit off the subject, I think, but this, this question of liquidation is an interesting one when you talk about the legitimacy of the Constitution. Because people, you know, ratify the Constitution and they have the ability to amend it. Um, you know, to amend it is more difficult, um, as we've talked about, than just passing statutes. And these liquidations took the form of statutes, not amendments. And sometimes the liquidations take the form of judicial decisions,
1: resolving questions. This is partly um, uh, what you see when people in confirmation hearings are asked, do you accept um, uh, Roe v. Wade or Brown v. Board or Griswold v. Connecticut or New York Times v. as Settled Law? Mm -hmm. Um, Settled Law, um, uh, settlement and liquidation are related concepts, two points. And then I know you also asked me about Wexler. Um, One is um, both ideas can be about judicial glosses, that's another word we sometimes use, or non-judicial. It can be statutes or congressional um, practices or uh, judicial decisions. It can be early liquidation gloss settlement, uh, very close to the, the founding itself, um, as in the Judiciary Act of 1789, or more recent stuff, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and New York Times versus Sullivan. I told you the, um, William Rehnquist um, actually, in effect, rode circuit in a certain way, um, and another uh, retired justice is So it can be early or late. Um, If you're an originalist, the early stuff counts for an awful lot. Um, If you're a living constitutionalist, maybe the more recent stuff counts for for more. It could be judicial or um, statutory or regulatory. Now, you also asked me
0: about... Yes, you mentioned the the question of Wexlerian uh, neutral principles. That's
1: a reference to Herbert Wexler, who was an eminent scholar um, and government servant... Um, associated with the Columbia Law School. He, along with his colleague um, Henry Hart at Harvard, were the co-authors of the casebook um, that's been cited more by the Supreme Court than any other. It's called the Hart and Wexler Casebook. In my oral remarks, I mentioned that early versions of this 18-year idea had been endorsed by dozens of scholars, um, And I mentioned two in particular I singled out. David Shapiro and Paul Mishkin. Why did I single them out? Because they were editors of this Hart and Wexler casebook that's been cited again by the Supreme Court more than any other casebook two of the commissioners of the 35 or 36 commissioners are current editors of the Hart and Wexler casebook, Jack Goldsmith, who's uh, my former student, um, and Dick Fallon. They're both professors at Harvard Law School, both graduates of Yale Law School, but professors of Harvard Law School. So look, I'm actually, in effect, trying to to persuade them. I'm, again, trying to figure out where, where is my audience, where, what do they think about, what does Caleb Nelson think about. Um, so, um, but Hart and Wexler is the gold standard for lawyers and judges. Um, and, uh, um, uh, and one of uh, Herbert Wexler's biggest ideas was this idea of neutral principles. Um, it's one of the five he wrote an article about this it's one of the five most cited um, law review articles of all time Um, and it's about how law shouldn't be partisan basically it's a an an effort to elaborate this deep idea this metaphor of the rule of law and not of men what does it mean to basically um um, the law be neutral as opposed to well there's one law for andy and there's a different law for akil um and he and he tries to elaborate all sorts of things that that might mean
0: treating of course that happens to be true <laughs> like when I'm speeding for example the speed limit doesn't apply to me
1: um, well we've talked before about um, uh, um, uh, well, sometimes things are a little bit ad hominem um, we uh, maybe an opinion by John Marshall counts for more than an opinion by you know some undistinguished uh, judge, I'm invoking the authority of Herbert Wexler in an ad hominem way. You know, he counts for more. I actually said, "Listen, if distinguished scholars disagree with me, that's going to be a problem for for my approach." But in effect, I'm saying, "Oops." Oh, some scholars are more distinguished than others. And you gave me good advice. You said, you know, don't just say, well, I'm a Kilomar and I'm an expert on this. And, um, and so you gave me very good advice before in saying, you know, don't go there. You might think, you know, that you know more, but 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 keep it neutral. Um, you're open to hearing other points of view. Let's just uh, uh, be very honest. Um, Argument focused, but but that's I, but I did invoke the great Herbert Wexler for this idea that law shouldn't be partisan. It shouldn't be just special rules for President Biden that won't apply to the next president, who might be, for example, a Republican. Let me tell our audience one more thing, because um, uh, two more things. Um, Herbert Wexler was. Um, uh, for decades, probably the single most distinguished preeminent professor at Columbia Law School, which is a great law school, um, he helped a young uh, student, law student at um, Columbia, um, helped launch her career. Her name was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and, and, and Wexler saw her talent and, and, and promoted her. Um, I was once at an event at Columbia when uh, an elderly Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, was um, reminiscing, I think Professor Wexler had already passed away by this point and she said that when she closed her eyes and imagined what God looked like, um, she imagined that he looked like Herbert Wexler. <laughs> um, and um, there's a chair at the University at Columbia Law School that's named for Herbert Wexler, its current occupant, is, um, yes, you guessed it. Uh, my audience is ahead of me, I'm sure, on this. Um, Philip Bobbitt, uh, who on this podcast is affectionately known, of course, as yes. Sir Philip. Sir Philip, even though actually we Americans don't have to call him Sir. We're maybe not even supposed to call him Sir, but. but uh, we'll but, do it anyway. It's too much fun. And and, to... and, he, and he came on our podcast. We, we, we only have the best people on our podcast.
0: Yes, only Sirs and Madams or Dames <laughs> or whatever it is. Dom, I don't know. Um,
1: sirs with love.
0: Yes. So, um, there were other things that were discussed here. Um, for example, there was a question of uh, whether or not it's destabilizing if people think that a constitutional, constitutional amendment might be required rather than a statute in order to make these changes. Um, so, these are sort of like, it, does it raise a question of legitimacy? And is that.
1: Uh, and, a, and a later commissioner, actually, Andy, asked me about that. One of the co chairs, Bob hours. So maybe actually we could play that exchange.
0: Yes.
3: So I'm going to come back to you, Professor Omar, since I'm on this question. And I'm going to ask you if you could uh, to come back because I wasn't sure that you and Commissioner Nelson quite connected on this point. If I understood Commissioner Nelson's question, it was, if we have any constitutional doubt here, and certainly in the public debate, the intensity of that doubt will be Let's put this way that that will be intensely expressed in the partisan give and take over the wisdom of a particular proposal. I think he's raising the question of whether proceeding by a statutory amendment would have a destabilizing effect. That in this hyper polarized environment, if we ever have any doubt about the constitutionality of a proposal like this. Uh, then we should go the constitutional route rather than the statutory route. And I didn't fully understand uh, your response because I wasn't sure that the two of you were you know, sort of on the same wavelength on the question. So could I ask you to come back to that? Wouldn't even those who are very sympathetic to your point of view are still, as far as I can tell, coming away with thought that there is going to be a big argument about this. You suggest you might bring people together and bring them into a conversation and you'd be happy to testify before the Congress. But there's going to be, resistance on the merits of the argument on the part of those who don't agree with you is that not game set match for how we want to make a change like this that we'd want to do it in a constitutionally accepted fashion if there's any doubt about the statutory route
1: It's, it's very relevant, but it's not game, set and match because their arguments would have to be actually at the very least extremely plausible, maybe even you know extremely good. And I've gotta be honest, I haven't heard anything yet. I've heard objections to multiple commissions but you don't need that at all. And we didn't have that actually with the first judiciary act, okay? We've already decided that. I hear objections to, oh, um, you know, sitting by designation, 11 justices have done that since 1937 and that includes um, retired justices. And that includes also, not, not that doesn't include Chief Justice Rehnquist um, sitting in the n- mid 1990s. Uh, he actually got reversed by the fourth circuit, I believe when he, when he sat as a, as a trial judge in, in that capacity. Um, um, my colleague, uh, Professor Jackson, says she's worried, oh, she concedes, okay, you got the title for life. Okay, you, you got um, um, the, um, uh, the, the, the payment for life. Oh, but your power is going to be less after 18 years. Yes, that's true. Also, if you double the size of the Supreme Court for good government reasons, because you add a whole bunch of new circuits, Um, um, And no one thinks that that's unconstitutional. So there's not actually a vested constitutional interest in, you know, the amount of power that you currently have. And John Marshall says all of that when he says you can take away actually for these midnight judges, that were lower court um, uh, judges. You can take away their jurisdiction. You got to pay them and their justice, their judges for life. But there's not a vested right to a certain amount of power when you. Um, even without any um, uh, um, uh, uh, proposal of my sort, when you appoint new justices, the old swing no longer is the new swing um, with with a new composition. And that old person loses power to some extent. That's not actually a valid constitutional objection. So yes, if if on a careful analysis by uh, respected scholars of this version, there are lots of folks who say, I still have a serious constitutional objection. You should take that into account because I'm trying to suggest that this will actually lower the stakes of a, con- a confirmation hearing because it's not for 30 years, it's only for 18. I'm trying to suggest, you know, we could get bipartisan buy-in if we don't get that because if people think this is actually a constitutional problematic idea, that is relevant. It's not game set and match that one person or even three people, even three people that I really respect have doubts um, I I wanna hear specifically what those are because I don't think truthfully there is yet one on the table. I'll, I'll tell you what the, the, the most serious concern that hasn't been raised that I do think exists, which is um, I'm suggesting, and you don't have to have this in the proposal. You could get rid of this too, just like you could get rid of circuit writing, a, a slightly different way of thinking about the chief justice as in effect the senior um, um, uh, associate Justice. Now, in fact, that's true. When the Chief Justice dies or resigns, um, we actually treat the, typically the senior um, Associate Justice as the acting Chief. Um, that I, I think that that actually has some advantages. But I could imagine someone raising the question about that. Oh, you were appointed to be Associate. Now you're Chief. I think that's all built in to the nature of the office when you were appointed to it. But but. It is relevant if people aren't persuaded, thoughtful people. It's not game, set, and match unless you, you know, in your independent judgment and and your co-chair and and the other commissioners actually think those constitutional objections are well taken.
0: Okay, so you were asked by Bob Bauer to sort of re-engage with this question of legitimacy, that if people uh, have constitutional objections, to the notion that this uh, reform can take place as a statute rather than a constitutional amendment, and notwithstanding those objections, uh, a statute is passed, that then the court will lose legitimacy and there'll be challenges to uh, to who should sit on a particular case and so forth. And actually this reminds me of some of the presidential succession discussions we had. You know that if these things are not clarified, I know some people think that it's not constitutional for the Speaker of the House to succeed. What happens if the Speaker of the House succeeds? Then that'll be challenged. Um, So there's there's some analogy there, Um, but I think that uh, listening to your answer, I think what you, in part, what I might paraphrase paraphrase it as saying, well, it can't just be that someone just objects. It has to be an objection that is well-founded, that has uh, echo, that scholars echo repeatedly, um, and so forth. Um, so I guess what I would ask you is, what are those the objections that are out there right now um, that, that require answering? As I mentioned, most of them are to an earlier version of the
1: proposal in which someone would be technically a justice on the Supreme Court for 18 years and after that would be formally term limited from being uh, a justice and uh, would would in effect then be a lower court judge as such uh, for uh, life. And, um, and that does raise some issues about multiple appointments and multiple commissions, not commissions like the Biden commission, but just the piece of paper that one um, gets as a government officer. Um, and so I said, forget all that. That's, that was too complicated a version. I floated something like that in the op-ed, but that was two sentences in the op-ed. I've thought about it some more. This is the easier way to lawyer it. You're a justice for life. You get paid for life. Um, your f- title is Supreme Court Justice. And the stuff that you're doing, I now understand better than I did in 2002. We can come up with a duty roster stuff that's genuinely re- connected to being a Supreme Court Justice, because Supreme Court Justices do more than sit on bunk. They, they pick cases. They uh, um, uh, testify before Congress. They perform administrative functions. They, they help um, explain what the court does um, to, to eighth graders and to, and to foreign jurists. They, they do a lot of things that are genuinely connected to being Supreme Court justices. A- and here's the buy um, in we're going to get on my proposal I'm going to invite the existing active service justices to help figure out what would be sensible and helpful things that emeritus justices could do. Um, so, so I was trying to say in a polite way, um, and, and, Andy in a polite way, cause you know, you encouraged me just, you know, to, to dial it down a bit. Cause you know, I can sometimes, um, um, uh, ratchet up the volume. You and Vinita, my, my wife, you give me such good advice. Whenever I go off to one of these things, Vinita, you know, um, put her hands on my shoulders, just looks at me as I'm walking out the door and says, don't fight. <laughs> so and and so you know. But but I was trying to say in a gentle way, gentle because again you, you wisely advised me on this. I actually haven't heard any good arguments yet. The only uh, against this proposal, the only arguments I've heard are against a different proposal, um, and some of those actually even aren't truthful I don't think in the end persuasive to me, um, and I'm not sure that anyone has said I you know, Joe Joe Schmoe, you know, Josephine Schmoe, I personally do believe that this is in fact unconstitutional and I want to put my own scholarly uh, reputation on the line. It's just well, some people say and one might think and and that's not very good because I am putting my name on the line and saying, you know, I I think I'm a a credible person and... It's not just that I think this is constitutional. I think this is easy and obvious. That's what I said. And if someone disagrees, let you know, bring it on. Let's, let's, we'll be very polite, but let's, let's, have, let's hash out the discussion. Um, and, and people who have said that have not backed it up, in my view, with careful analysis. And, and they have mainly been reacting, I think, to earlier versions. Because when you just say term limits for justices... Yeah, that sounds wrong, because justices serve for life. Um, and and they're being, and this is a phrase um, that Antonin Scalia used in a famous case a long time ago, faked out by the label, because it really isn't technically term limits for justices, which was one of the um, five points I made at the very beginning of uh, my oral remarks, because I think people are being faked out by the label. You and I are Lincoln fans. Um Uh, Oh, um, and in my written testimony, I actually cite to a piece that I wrote. It's called The Five-Legged Dog, because Lincoln once says, if you call a tail a leg, he asked the audience, if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? And and the answer is four, because calling it a leg doesn't make it so. You could call it term limits, but it really isn't term limits. You're on the court for life, And, and that was casual and 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 mistaken on my part to maybe even call it term limits as such and and people be just being are just some of them being faked out by the label
0: yeah i as just as a as a listener as a citizen listening to the testimony i i was getting frankly annoyed by this phraseology of yeah some people say people have constitutional objections i may have some constitutional objections Without enumerating them. So, you know, what good is that? I mean, uh, now the, the closest that I heard, other than what you talked about with the multiple commissions, was when I guess it was Professor Jackson uh, talked about the notion of power, that somehow you would be uh, decreasing the power of uh, justice. Now, of course, and, and even you, heard, if, you heard me in that earlier around saying yeah, that can't be the test. Right. I mean, and even if arguably you were, uh, which I don't think you, you which, it, it, as you say, but even so, it's prospective. So what... Yeah, it, people are buying into this in
1: advance when they agree to um, uh, take the job under uh, these um, uh, rules and the justices themselves are promulgating the rules for emeritus service, you're... You know, if someone's on the faculty for life, but in the second half you shift into administration or something like that, it's just a, a, a different um, a set of duties. One more thing that I didn't say, um, but that our, our audience can hear now for the first time um, um, yes, in a way you may have less power at the end because you're not sitting en banc on bank except when the court is short staffed but you will have more power from day one because it'll be less of a gerontocracy and a seniority system in which early justices basically almost never get good assignments because um, some people have been there just sort of forever. And, and, and in today's world, you, you kind of want to stay as long as possible to build up that seniority. It, it would be just a different set of dynamics. Um, turn-taking um, which uh, Congress has ad- uh, adopted at times for limits, term limits, as it were, on on committee assignments and 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 uh, for chairs of certain committees, actually mean that um, uh, the junior folks will have, in a way, more power. See so a little bit more power earlier,
0: and yes, maybe less power later. Well, and also you have the, you'll have the opportunity to be Chief Justice at ah, some point. Ah, good point. See, Andy, look you're
1: giving me points that i should have made and didn't quite um, and the, and the chief justice thing which if our listeners go back to the earlier podcast kind of emerged you know fairly late in our conversation those are some of the most interesting parts of of my new version they weren't even in my earlier version um, and and two points and then uh, maybe we can there's one more clip i want our, our readers to to, to hear an uh, exchange with professor rick pildis one is I myself volunteered that I thought that was the biggest objection. No one else said that, okay, because they haven't thought about my new idea. I only, you know, uploaded it um, uh, um, a few uh, days before their testimony, okay. So I volunteered that I thought that was probably the best possible objection is you're appointed as associate, yet you become chief, and those are two distinct offices. I don't think there's a problem, but... I owe a duty of candor. If I'm a witness before a governmental body, you know, this is not about my ego or anyone else's. You know, and so, so I, I owed the commissioners and the country um, uh, my best view of of what what I think is the, the strongest objection, and it wasn't close to what anyone else was, was saying. It's about the chief justice position. So. And that's what a good lawyer does before the court. That's how you have credibility. This is what our friend Neil Katyal is going to talk about when we when we have him, you know, on our, on our next podcast. Is how. Um, the Solicitor General, and he's been acting Solicitor General of the United States, has um, credibility with the court. But you'll lose it if you're if you're not honest with them about what the, the weakness of your argument is, the strong case on the other side. You don't hide that from the decision maker. Um, and you heard me say, it's up to you, the commissioners. You're the decision makers. I'm going to give you all of the information. I have my best advice. So I volunteered that, and that's best practice for all the lawyers out there. Don't hide the problem with your argument identified that's what scholars do as well i try to do that in my in my writing um so um so that's one point and the other point is um in a previous episode um, of our podcast you and i were talking you at one point said well lower court justices have life tenure but maybe they're auditioning for the supreme court they want to Supreme Court justices and so they might sort of pander to the president uh, so they could get a future nomination and I think I quoted your fellow New Jerseyan Bruce Springsteen when I said poor men want to be rich rich men want to be king you know um, associate justices want to be chief justices Um, and that can create a pathology and even if it doesn't happen people might think it's happening oh and my proposal solves that problem because you're no longer auditioning or being perceived as auditioning for the chief position. And, and I wasn't making that up because William Rehnquist moves from being an associate to chief justice, and Harlan Fisk Stone did the same thing, and Charles Evans Hughes was once an associate, and he comes back to the court as chief, and and Noah Feldman, actually, in his books, and Jim Simon in his actually talk about how there was a certain competition among justices in the 1950s, associates who did want to be chief. I, I wasn't. Making that stuff up, I wasn't hallucinating. But um, uh, in our earlier uh, podcast, I, I, just in conversation, I said, "Oh, wait a minute! Um, I've just solved, you know, an, an interesting uh, problem." When I just say, by seniority, the the, mo- the senior most associate becomes chief.
0: Well, there's and, another actually interesting aspect to it. You know, Professor Jackson um, <coughs> mentioned. She's concerned that justices might leave early because they might have a lucrative job or they're worried about their employment afterwards. But if they leave early now, they would be foregoing the opportunity to be chief justice, which actually, if you're worried about your employment afterwards, having been chief justice is yet another uh, credential. That, Andy,
1: that's such a cool point, And I'm embarrassed because I didn't think of it. But
0: um, Wow. So, anyway, I, I, I really was impressed with the discussion, but, um, but less impressed with the objections. So do you think that when they was, that really what they meant was, not that there are serious objections, but that there were spurious uh, objections, uh, you know, sort of frivolous objections that kind of like what we saw with the impeachment.
1: I don't that, I, I don't think anyone was, was acting remotely in bad faith. As I said, I think... They no, were. no,
0: I'm not saying that they were acting in bad yeah. faith. But one of the issues here is can you get it passed? Yeah. And, you know, in the impeachment, we saw people, con- con- you know, senators saying, well, you know, I'm not going to vote on the merits. I'm going to vote on the fact that the president... You know, it's not legitimate to impeach them now, which, as I think we established, was a very weak um, argument. Uh, so the same thing could happen here. It could. And that may be part of what they're saying, that, you know, people will object to it on constitutional grounds, even though there is no real good it, objection it, it on could. constitutional grounds. And that's grounds. why it welcomed, you know, in
1: the end, that the commission at most can make recommendations. Um, it, it can't legislate. So if this is going to have legs and go anywhere, we're going to have more hearings and more deliberation on this. Lots of op-eds. Let the games begin.
0: Yeah. I think, actually, they can't even make recommendations. I think that their charge is just to write a white paper, but okay. not to, But but they were specifically, okay. I believe, told not to make recommendations, okay. interestingly. But we'll see. So... Um, so, but there was one more
1: um, interesting exchange um, with a very distinguished scholar who, for whom I have a lot of respect, um, Rick Pildis at NYU. Maybe we could listen to that one. Sure.
4: Um, one of the things that we have become more familiar with, unfortunately, in recent years among European democracies is what has sometimes been called democratic backsliding and um, And in particular, um, what has happened of course is that electoral majorities that do get elected through the normal electoral process then leverage their power once in office to seize control of the independent institutions that might resist their further efforts to entrench themselves. And that particularly applies uh, to the independent courts. Um, And political scientists who have looked at this issue across democracies where very similar kinds of forces are at work across a lot of the Western democracies um, have uh, concluded that the the systems that are most prone to this electoral authoritarianism, as it's sometimes called, um, are those in which a simple majority can fairly directly uh, through the political process, take control of institutions by doing things like changing retirement ages of justices and the like. Um, and the U.S. is offered as an example of a system most resistant to this risk, particularly because we have bicameralism, we have the Article Three Supreme Court as it currently exists. Um, leaving aside the, you know, whether it's constitutional to do this by statute, but just in terms of whether, the, the, w- whether it's wise policy, um, do you think the U.S. is, largely immune to the same forces that have generated electoral authoritarianism in other democracies in recent years. Um, and uh, as others have asked, you know, how concerned ought we to be um, that legislation to impose term limits does open the door to future legislative majorities doing what they have done in some of these other democracies to really dramatically undermine the democratic system.
1: you're muted. Thank you, commissioner. We should be very worried Um, uh, and it can happen here. And I might've given you a different answer six years ago, Um, uh, but uh, Donald Trump's presidency um, uh, chastened uh, the cockiness uh, that I may have had then about um, just how uh, great our system is compared to the rest of the world. Um, A few quick points. First, on 18 years as the sweet spot. Again, forget as you uh, invited me to forget how we get there. Um, I do think, and 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 uh, in regard to what uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Jackson uh, mentioned, I would want to remind everyone that um, in 2009, there was an open letter signed by more than 40 uh, distinguished um, constitutional scholars from across the spectrum in support of an 18 year idea. That was, I didn't sign the letter. I just, generally am not a a signer of things, Um, uh, uh, but that was the uh, Crampton um, uh, Carrington proposal signed by people including uh, professors Barbara Babcock, Jack Balkin, Paul Carrington, Roger Crampton, Dan Metter, Frank Michaelman, Paul Mishkin, Robert Nagel, L.A. Scott Poe, uh, uh, Jeff Powell, Judith Resnick, Kurt Trader, David Shapiro, Peter Strauss. So I thought that was interesting um, that there was that sort of um, range. Um, and it was uh, 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 on 18 years. Um, the other thing I'd wanna tell you, um, two other things. One, um, in the long run, if the people of the United States wanna take us to hell, um, uh, it's, a, it's a republic in which you know uh, um, they're gonna have their, their will, but we wanna structure things so that that's not an easy a um, uh, row, um, and if you lose three presidential elections in a row, then I do think it's going to just be hard to, to hold um, to to some crazy type. That's going to be hard. I agree with uh, my colleague that 18 years um, is is a good length. It's going to require three. Um, I think 18 fits net well with nine. But here's my final point because just as I thought a lot about. Uh, Commissioner Nelson's ideas about liquidation and trying to structure something that reminded me of the Judiciary Act of 1789, I thought a lot about your ideas along with Levinson's about separation of parties and not merely of powers. And since you mentioned the the presidential model, here's why. Um, 18 years not only equalizes power across um, presidencies, so Trump doesn't get three compared to Carter's zero, and equalizes presidential elections, so we always know that there are going to be two coming up. My specific idea in to have these um, confirmations in years one and three was. Um, twofold. It equalizes things within a presidential administration, one pre-midterm, one post-midterm. And you know that that may change the partisan nature of things because presidents often lose seats in the Senate after the first two years. So you might have one unified party um, uh, uh, appointee and one Um, uh, uh, a a bipartisan um, um, divided government nominee if you have it in years one and three. And so I I thought a little bit about that and and equalizing that because there are pathologies and and possibilities and promises with each kind of configuration. And the second thing that it does, it not only equalizes power within um, a a presidency um, between pre-midterm and post-midterm, which relates to partisan um, control and divided government, but it also picked, I thought, the least um, uh, um, superheated moments to do it, not in election years, but in off years, in years one and three and not two and four. And I thought that had a modest advantage. Final thought, um, since it was asked before, um, what about judges um, um, picking someone if the parties are at loggerheads, the president and the Senate, Um, And my colleague, uh, Professor Ginsburg says, actually, that's how some other societies do it. As a practical matter, we are beginning to do that when lower federal court judges are actually testifying for and vouching on behalf of some of their appellate court colleagues in Supreme Court hearings. At best, that makes it less superheated because you're actually getting distinguished jurists who have impressed other jurists before they even sort of get to the the final round of of consideration. And if you add to that, having these hearings being held in years one and three rather than two and four, and it's only for 18 years rather than for 35, those are ways of trying to reduce the temperature, reducing the possibility that toxic politics will destroy the judiciary. But in a democracy, it's always a long-term risk, of course.
0: Thank you. Okay, so uh, so you were asked by Rick Pildes um, a question, and when, when I looked, listened to the question, it seemed to me that he was saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that if you pass a statute uh, about 18-year terms, you know, we've discussed the facts, not really term limits, but anyway, um, just by having this precedent of Congress passing these statutes, he's saying that you may be opening an authoritarian door in a sense where Congress you know then passes legislation in the future to try to uh, make it so that judges that they don't like have to retire you know or something like that now in an earlier question you would responded to a, I thought a similar concern by saying that you take the proper version, p- portion of the necessary and proper clause seriously it seems to me that's what would answer this question
1: it but, would Um, And you're absolutely right, Andy, and and, and I could have just, you know, basically said, asked and answered, this is neutral principles, it's not partisan, it's perspective. Um, People who, uh, once the statute's in place, every justice confirmed knows what the rules are going to be for his or her um, uh, service. So I could have just done that, Um, but I wanted to do one more thing because just like... um, I I know where Cal- I know who Caleb Nelson is, and I respect him. And I wanted to persuade him, so I wanted to meet him on grounds of some of his ideas, like on liquidation. I respect Rick Pildes; he's a very impressive fellow, and I, uh, he's a NYU um, uh, professor. Um, and um, and one of his bigger ideas has been that we have to focus on. He's wor- he's worried about democracy on the the world and and de- democratic backsliding. He's also very much been focused on the role of political parties in America. And he, along with a person named Daryl Levinson, have a very famous idea that our system has really moved from separation of powers, legislature versus executive, to separation of parties. It's really much more about whether there's unified or divided government between Congress and the White House. I think that's a really good and interesting idea, um, and I wanted to use his question To connect my proposal to his idea because that's actually how you persuade people is you actually show them that you thought about their ideas and you're trying to meet them where they are and I said listen here are a couple of ways in which just like I was thinking about liquidation when I came up with my idea and that's why I mentioned to Caleb I said to Rick listen I was thinking about your idea when I said half of the appointments are going to be in the first year of a, of a presidential term and half in the third year. First year is likely to be unified government for reasons you, Rick Pildis, have actually um, explained and um, more likely to be divided government in the second post-midterm. And by the way, Rick later, just a couple of days after that, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times talking about this, how presidents tend to lose ground in, in midterms. But, um, uh, so my proposal won't just equalize power across presidencies, but within presidencies. And and you should like this idea, Rick, because you're the one who says we have to theorize unified government differently than divided government. And I've thought about that, and I'm actually trying to equalize apportionment uh, appointments between uni- likely unified in the first half um, and likely divided in, in post-midterm in the second half. And you should also like this because you are interested in the timing of elections. That's also a, um, part of the, his most recent op-ed, which appeared after this exchange. Um, and I've proposed, here's another benefit that I didn't really highlight so much. We're going to have these appointments in off-year elections, w- years one and three, not two and four, which are, which are election years. So um, um, I've tr- I, I, I don't argue before courts. Um, you know, I'm not a great litigator like my friend, Uh, Neil Katyal, whom we're going to hear from actually in a couple of future podcast episodes, but I have studied the great litigators, the great oral advocates, um, and I'm always impressed about how they take a question and at their best they don't just sort of answer it. I could just, you know, asked and answered, you know, Wexler and first principles, but they use it as an opportunity maybe to make a new point, and maybe if they're, that's if they're good. And if they're really good, they use it as an opportunity, actually, to make a new and good point that will mean something special to the questioner, um, and 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 show the questioner that they really have taken seriously the questioner's ideas and and, and background and concern. Um, in previous episodes, I've tried to say this, and I thought about the biographies of the the existing justices. We still have a you know a couple biographies left to do of of Kavanaugh and. Um, and Amy Coney Barrett, which I, I, uh, we will get to. Um, but I've tried to study the really great oral advocates. Um, and um, one of them is my, my protege, my friend, my adopted kid brother, Neil Katyal. And he's going to be actually, um, he's agreed to, to do um, uh, a couple of podcast episodes with us. So we're actually, I think, with your permission, going to put off the Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett stuff, so we can have a couple of um, episodes with um, the great oral advocate, Neil Katyal.
0: Well, I look forward to that, just I've been looking forward to it for a long time. So, um, okay, so look on the website for the various show notes that we've discussed, uh, as well as, uh, as I said, Professor Moore's other testimonies, which are also up on the website, and next week, uh, into the Solicitor General's office.